All right. Now that we've got that settled. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Good? Good? My name is Rachel. And thanks. Thanks. I really am excited to be with you guys. I wasn't able to be here last week, and I realized I was visiting my parents. And I just realized I really miss you guys. So it's been one week um, since I've been here, but I'm glad to be here with you guys. We have been walking through looking at Jesus through encounters with one of his disciples, Peter. And if you were here first semester, we talked through some of those, and then we jumped into 1 Peter. And then we took a short break, we were in Ecclesiastes, and now we're back talking about these encounters that Peter has with Jesus. Last week, Drew walked us through something called the Transfiguration, which honestly is not a very common word, and... Um, so maybe that was the first time you've heard about that encounter with Jesus. It's this moment where Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he's with Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples. And as Jesus is on the mountain, his appearance is transfigured. His face starts to shine like the sun. And two other people show up, one being Moses, the lawgiver, one of the most famous people in Jewish history, and Elijah who is a prophet, one of the most influential prophets in Jewish history as well. So on the mountain, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are talking about what is to come. The title for Jesus is the Son of Man, that the Son of Man must suffer. That's what they talk about on the Mount of Transfiguration. So after the Transfiguration, a couple months pass. And I'm going to throw a timeline that I totally made arbitrarily. Um, this is like not like the maps where distance actually is approximate or exact. Mine are approximate. Um, so the gap between Transfiguration and Triumphal Entry is a couple months. And then I ran out of slide space. And so it should, it's, it's like a week in between the Triumphal Entry, Passover, and then Easter. So I just want to walk you through kind of how this transpires. So Jesus enters Jerusalem a couple months after the transfiguration, and this is called the triumphal entry because when he comes into the city, the people celebrate him as king, the promised Messiah that they've been waiting for all this time. So Jesus' popularity with the people, sky high. They're celebrating him. They are like, this, this is our God. This is the Messiah. He comes into the city, triumphal entry, and then he goes to the temple, which is that second. That actually happens very close together, but again, space, it's hard. Um, respect for maps, people. That's what I learned making this. So Jesus goes into the temple, and he stops worship completely. He, like, wrecks the temple, and he calls out the religious leaders for their corruption. The way that they have turned the temple a place to worship God into something that they benefit from financially, um, then it's, it's become corrupted. So as you can imagine, while Jesus' popularity with the people is sky high, his popularity with the religious leaders is at an all-time low. The conflict is rising with the religious leaders. So during the day, all the people are here. This is happening during a really important Jewish festival called the Passover. So there's way more people in Jerusalem than normal. It'd be like New Year's Eve in Times Square. There's so many people in Jerusalem 
So during the day, Jesus is safe because the people love him. But at night, during this week, he leaves the city because it's not safe because of the conflict with the religious leaders. So now we come to Passover. So this is the key moment. And Jesus and his disciples come into the city to celebrate Passover at night. So Jesus sits down. He's having Passover. This is the Last Supper, the famous Last Supper. And Jesus has some very shocking news. Not the first time that he's told his disciples, but it's getting really real. Because he tells them that he has to suffer. And not only that he has to suffer, but that he has to die. So this isn't the first time that the disciples have heard this. But it's one of the first signs they're starting to pick up on this. And this is like, wait, what? You're, you have to die? You have to suffer? Remember Drew talked about last week that Jews had no concept of a suffering Messiah. Even though the prophecies in Isaiah speak about that, they envisioned a military leader, not someone who suffers. And so this, the disciples are trying to make sense of what's happening. So Jesus breaks this news to them, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And as if that wasn't enough, he also tells them that one of you, among the twelve, is going to betray me. And they have no idea who it is. The text says that they start arguing among themselves, like, it's you, it's you. It's like that office scene where they're all just pointing at each other, and they're like, what is it going to be? They have no idea. So this is where our text picks up for tonight. So if you'll turn to Luke 22, that is where we're going to be tonight. So like I said, this is in the context of the Passover meal. This is the Last Supper that's happening. And Jesus had just revealed, I'm going to die. One of you is going to betray me. And we're going to pick it up in verse 31 when he has a conversation with our boy, Peter. So starting in, this is Luke 22, verse 31. This is what he says. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus just told his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And now he tells Peter, another disciple, that Peter will be tested. Peter's response, he's confident. He's a confident dude. If you haven't picked up on that, he is like, shoots from the hip. And his response here, he's like, Jesus, I'm your day one. I'm ride or die. Like, we go to prison, I'm going to prison. We're going to die, we're going to die together. He's confident that he will remain faithful to Jesus. And I actually, like, think Peter's got a good case here. Peter has seen Jesus heal blind people. Peter has watched Jesus raised people who were dead that now are alive. Peter just came off of the transfiguration. He saw Jesus in his glory. Peter has confessed that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. 
So when Peter says, I'll go with you to prison, I'll go with you to death, I think Peter really means it, and it's genuine. Jesus does not agree with Peter. He instead predicts that Peter, instead of sticking with him to the end, will actually deny him. Not just once, but actually three times before the night is over. I think if someone told me that, I don't know how I would take that if I was Peter. Jesus is the one saying that. I think actually humans respond to things like this in similar ways. Um, So I'm going to compare a brother that I have to the Apostle Peter, and unashamedly so, on the basis that they're both human. So I have a brother whose name is Aaron. He's a confident dude. And in high school, he was in the marching band. He played percussion. It was cooler than me. I was in the band. Um, And I'm from the Texas Panhandle, and the way that it works in the fall is that it's really warm during the day, and then the evening, there's no humidity to balance anything out. So the temperature swings. It's kind of like a desert. That's where I'm from. I'm from a desert. And so this is what's happening in the fall. And I distinctly remember this one time that Aaron's walking out the door to go to practice. I don't know what marching man does before the game starts. And he's leaving, and my dad yells, Aaron, don't forget a jacket. He's like walking out the door. He's got the keys swinging, the lanyard, the high school. Yeah, you know the one. Um, we, we all had that face. Um, he's walking out the door. And I remember what Aaron said. He said, mm-hmm, yep. And then he walked out without a jacket. No one's surprised. And I don't think that it's because my brother thought my dad's an idiot. Like, I really don't think that's why he went without a jacket. And I don't even think that Aaron thought my dad was saying something untrue. I think Aaron actually just thought, I don't need a jacket. I'm stronger than that. I'm not a weakling. Right? He thought, actually, Dad, appreciate that, but I think I know when I need a jacket and when I don't need a jacket. And I kind of wonder if Peter responded in a similar way. Yeah, I hear you, but, like, remember, ride or die. I'm with you to the end. Like, I hear you, but I'm good. He's pretty confident. So after the Passover conversation takes place, Jesus and his disciples go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. So here's the situation. It's late at night. It's dark. The disciples have had a long day. And they're tired. Jesus tells them, pray. I'm going to go pray over here. They fall asleep. And I've been there. I've fallen asleep in situations that I, I shouldn't have. I should have stayed awake. So I get it. I get what the disciples are going through. Um, being tired is hard. So Jesus is praying. They're sleeping. This is, this is what happens. They're sleeping. And all of a sudden... Out of the night. They're already sleeping outside. I don't know if you've been camping. It's terrifying to just sleep outside. Like, just on its own. But they wake up to, not a deer, not nature sounds. They wake up to a mob of people. A mob with clubs, with swords, and with torches. 
I wake up in a panic to my phone alarm. And if it was a mob of people, I don't know, the adrenaline would be out, like, I was about to say out the wazoo, and then, like, that sounds silly, but I started already, so. <laughs> the panic would be out the wazoo. It feels appropriate. So, this is what's happening. The mob comes to the garden. They wake up. They're here with Jesus. They have no idea what's happening. Chaos is ensuing. And then, Peter sees Judas. Imagine this. He sees Judas, and he watches Judas betray Jesus to Jesus' enemies. That was his God. Like, Judas had spent three years with Jesus, with Peter. He had been chosen by Jesus. And now he's turning his back on them in the moment where they need everyone to be together. And Peter's watching this unfold. His head has to be spinning. So this mob is not here to like, just, Jesus, would you like to come with us to the high priest's house? They're here to take him by force. And Peter is freaking out. The disciples are freaking out. Because this has become a life or death situation. They have no idea what this mob is about to do. They, are, they could kill them right here in this garden. And so Peter does what I honestly think I would do. Grabs literally anything and starts swinging. And he does. He does. He picks up a sword and he starts swinging to defend Jesus. I don't know if he had good aim or not. But he did chop a guy's ear off. And I don't know if that's what he was aiming for. Um, but that's what he got. And Jesus stops the whole situation. Imagine the chaos that is ensuing. Everyone's trying to figure out what to do. Peter just jumps into action. And then someone's ear is off of their head. Like, this, there's blood everywhere. This is a life and death situation. And Jesus stops Peter. He says, no more of this. Like, you, you can almost just feel like the energy like dissipate in the garden. Not only does Jesus stop Peter from killing people, but he heals one of the very men who's trying to arrest him. If I was Peter, I would be so confused. He heals someone who's trying to arrest him, one of his enemies, and then Jesus lets himself be arrested. Jesus does not resist arrest. They take him to the high priest's house for a trial. The disciples scatter, mostly, and Peter, the text says, follows along at a distance, and he ends up in the courtyard of this high priest's home. Pause. Everything in Peter's world is falling apart right now. A couple of days ago, Jesus was being celebrated as the Messiah. Peter's like, this is our moment. This is the moment we've been waiting for. And now, in a matter of hours, in one night, Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples. He's been arrested and he's been taken to a trial in the middle of the night. Peter has no idea what is going to happen. We look back and we know what has happened, but Peter's living this in real time. He has no idea what is going to happen 
And those religious leaders in there are deciding the fate of Peter's Messiah. He's in this courtyard of one of the most powerful men in Jerusalem, the high priest. It's cold outside. His hands are still shaking from swinging a sword. He has blood on his shirt still. His heart is racing. He has no idea. Everything is falling apart. Can you feel like the panic happening for Peter? Questions like, what will happen to Jesus? Why didn't Jesus defend himself? Why did Judas betray him? He was one of us. If Jesus goes to prison or if Jesus dies, am I going to go to prison? Am I going to die? What did I give up three years of my life for if this man is, is in prison? Was it really worth following Jesus? Because everything is falling apart right now. So what does Peter do in this situation? All he can do is wait. He's in this courtyard. It's cold. There's a bunch of other people who aren't important enough to be in the trial. And so he scoots closer to the fire. And what happens next is that a servant, picking up in verse 56, he's sitting in the fire, his heart racing. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. Someone in this courtyard recognizes Peter and announces to everyone in the courtyard that Peter is with that guy who's inside on trial for heresy. Peter is now guilty by association. Someone has associated him with Jesus, and Jesus is looking awfully guilty in that trial in there. So if Jesus' fate hangs in the balance, Peter's fate also hangs in the balance right now. And what does he do? What does he say? He denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Peter denies Jesus. He tells this woman and everyone else in the courtyard, I'm not with Jesus. I don't know him. Then after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I'm not, Peter said. Another person has recognized him. And he's making this claim. You're, you're part of that group. And the leader is on trial inside. Jesus is being tried for heresy. Punishable by death. And this person accuses Peter. He says, you're in that group. That's your leader. And Peter denies it once more. About an hour later, another kept insisting. This man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. Peter denies Jesus one more time. This time saying he doesn't even know what this guy's talking about. I don't know if you've been in a situation before where somebody implicates you in something that you actually were a part of and you feel flustered and you panic and you need to distance yourself from that situation, what do we say? We don't defend ourselves rationally. I don't even know what you're talking about. I, what, I don't even know what you're talking about. This is the panic and the desperation 
that Peter has in his voice. He's trying to create as much distance as he can from Jesus and from any consequences that would come from following Jesus right now. Luke doesn't include this fun tidbit, but John's Gospel does include that not only is Peter denying him, he's swearing as he's denying him. Peter's not just like, no, it's not my guy. He's like, I'm not, I am not with him. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's creating as much distance as he can between him and Jesus. Because Jesus' fate hangs in the balance. And while the words are still coming out of his mouth, And all of a sudden, as the sound splits the air, Peter looks into this open hallway, and the text says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And as Peter locks eyes with Jesus, all of a sudden, everything that has just happened becomes strikingly obvious. Everything around Peter is falling apart. And now, Peter has fallen apart. Peter has failed. Just like Jesus said he would. What do we do when everything around us is falling apart? When you fall apart, what do you do? That's the question that Peter is facing. Everything around him is unraveling. Everything he put his faith and trust in, he thinks is unraveling. And then he unravels. He fails Jesus. And he locks eyes with Jesus and he knows. He knows what he did. And I think that that same question that faced Peter actually faces us. And that's what we're going to talk about in the second half. We'll take a break and then we'll come back. Go to the bathroom, get a drink, stretch your legs. Okay. So I left you with this question. What do we do when everything is falling apart? What do we do when we have fallen apart? When you have fallen apart? Peter failed, like, big time. This was not just a small screw-up that Peter had. Jesus told Peter that he would be tested, and Peter was so confident. He's like, all the way, Jesus, I'm with you all the way. And then, when things got really hard, things started to change. When his friend Judas betrayed Jesus and turned his back on the men he'd been with for three years, when Jesus started to turn out to be a different kind of Messiah than Peter thought, a suffering one, when Peter was on the hook for experiencing the consequences of Jesus' fate, that Peter's fate is right there with Jesus, when things got really hard, Peter failed Jesus. 
And at first glance, I'll be honest, I kind of looked at Peter and I was like, really, bro? Really? Like, okay, you've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. And when things got hard, now you're out? How do you see those things and then make a different choice? And it's not like this is a pop quiz. Jesus literally told him, you will be tested. And Peter's like, I'm prepared. I'm ready to go. Jesus told him, and then the test came, and he still failed. It's really easy to judge Peter from right here. I'll be honest. But instead of looking at Peter for just a second, I want us to actually just look in the mirror. Think about a time that you really screwed up. Not just like, sorry, my bad, that was, sorry, but like you messed up. Because when I look in that mirror, I see conversations that I had with somebody and whenever I felt hurt and when I felt angry, I said something with the intent to hurt someone else. I wanted them to feel the way that I felt. And I felt justified in my anger. I saw them as less than. And as soon as I said the words, I could see the havoc and the destruction that my words had on that person. Someone I love. When I look in that mirror, I distinctly recall a time in high school when a wise older sister in faith told me that I was stuck in a cycle of manipulating her for her approval and affirmation because of my own pride. That's done both ways. When I look in the mirror, I see anger and jealousy that I told myself was justified to hold on to. Angry at people who hurt me. Jealous of people who have things that I want, of relationships I don't have. And not only do I wish I had them, I wish they didn't have them. I see patterns of thinking that I just let develop in my life, whether that is anger or impatience or lust. That's what I see when I look in my mirror. What's in your mirror? What are the moments that when you think about it makes your face feel flushed? The moments of your sin that maybe nobody knows about but you know. Moments when instead of walking in step with the standard that Jesus has called us to, instead of obeying him, you've created distance in between you and Jesus. Maybe it's lies you've told yourself about the people you're angry with, the stories you tell in your head about how you're justified in your anger, Maybe it's sexual lines you've crossed, telling yourself it doesn't matter because no one gets hurt. Addictions that you've swept under the rug. Times you've worshipped wealth or success or the approval of other people, and you have put your time and your resources and relationships on that altar. What's in your mirror? 
If we're honest, I think we all have moments and memories, probably rather vivid ones, whether it was 10 hours ago or 10 years ago, of moments that we know we screwed up, that we're still screwing up. We know that there's something broken inside of us. I don't think anyone has argued that there's not something wrong with us. The question isn't, do we have a sin problem? The question is, what will we do with our sin problem? What does Peter do? Read in verse 61. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter locks eyes into Jesus and he recognizes his sin. And Peter's response is to weep. The word for bitterly, it says he wept bitterly. That word in the Greek means violently. I don't know if you've ever wept violently. I could probably count like two times in my life. It's when your shoulders are heaving, your breathing is shallow and out of control, your head is pounding, and the only way that the tears are going to end is when exhaustion takes over. This is how Peter weeps. But Peter's actually not the only one who recognized his sin and responded violently. Matthew's gospel tells us that Judas, the other disciple who sinned against Jesus, was seized with remorse and hung himself in grief because of it. He recognized his sin and responded violently, just like Peter. So if both of these disciples failed Jesus, and both experienced deep sorrow over their sin, but Peter went on to leave the church and Judas is dead, what's the difference? Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. He says, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians who find themselves in a similar situation of being confronted with their own brokenness and sin, and they experience grief, but Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, calls this a godly grief, in contrast to worldly grief. And he says that godly grief produces repentance. So if that's the difference between godly grief and worldly grief, what is the deal with repentance? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means to change your mind. It's this word picture of you're walking a direction and you change your mind and you go a different direction. You change your mind, you make a different decision. 
So to repent from sin is to experience this conviction, this godly grief over our sin. And it changes our mind. We then choose to make a different decision to walk in step with what Jesus has called us to. Repentance means we do not rationalize or justify our sin. We don't explain it away. We don't avoid it. We don't put it under the rug. Repentance is taking ownership for your sin. And making a different choice. A choice to live life on Jesus' terms and not our own. A turning away from life on our own terms to life on Jesus's. I think the craziest thing about a crazy passage is that Jesus was not surprised by Peter's failure. Or Judas's, for that matter. He actually predicted it, as we read. And he still chose Peter to be a disciple, to be invited in. And while Peter was in the courtyard denying Jesus and creating as much distance as he could between him and Jesus, who is God, Jesus was in the room being perfectly faithful to God's standard, living the life that Peter could only hope to live. And while Peter was weeping violently over his sin and his separation from God, Jesus would go on to the cross to die to pay for the very sin Peter committed. And while Peter was desperately wondering what he could do to bridge this chasm that now existed between him and God, Jesus was making a way for Peter to be reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. Jesus knew before the beginning of time that Peter would deny him, that Peter would sin, that we would sin. That we would separate ourselves from God. And yet, while we were still sinners, he died for us. It is because of his great kindness that he invites us to be made right with him through his grace. And when he died, the payment for our sin, that moment that plays over in your head over and over, that you know you deserve the wages of that. You earned what you got. That that payment for sin, which is death, fell on Jesus. So what do we need to do to be saved? You and I asked that the audience at Pentecost, the first time the gospel is preached. They asked what do we need to do to be saved? How can we be saved from what we earn with our sin? How could we be saved from death? And it is Peter at Pentecost who says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Why do we repent? Because the Bible assures us that if we choose to repent and turn to God, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That before time he knew the worst thing you would do, your darkest secret, the thing that no one knows about, the thing that you feel shame about, that he knows that, and yet he extends grace to you. So when I ask you this question, what do you do when everything is falling apart? What do you do when you have fallen apart? You really have two choices. We're walking down this path of brokenness. And when we recognize our sin, we have a choice. We can either continue on down the path of destruction which leads to death, just ask Judas. Or we can repent. We can change our minds. We can change our response. My challenge to you is the same as Peter's at Pentecost. The same that Peter lived out as he wept over his sin and repented. The call for us today is to repent. To turn from living life on your own terms. To turn and live life according to Jesus's. It's so much better. You've already tried it. You've already tried living life on your own terms. And you know where it ends up. With emptiness and grief and destruction and shame. The call for us is to repent. In a room like this, there's people who have repented. Who have found the forgiveness that Jesus so graciously extends for us. The forgiveness he paid for with his life. There are those of us in this room who have seen our sin, recognized it for what it is, and turned. And now we live life on Jesus' terms. But until he comes back, our days of sinning and confessing and repenting are not done. In fact, those who have the Spirit can see even more clearly the depth of our sin. So Christians, this call is not... Just for those who are not following Jesus, this call is for you. Repent of your sin and live. And for those of you who have not turned from living life on your own terms, who are unsure about whether Jesus and God can be trusted to be the king over your life, repent. Jesus is worth following. He proved it to you with his death. He proved his love to you on the cross. This text is heavy. These questions that I've asked you are heavy questions. And I don't want to rush out of it. So I'm actually going to give you a little bit of time to answer in your own heart and mind 
two reflection questions. This is the first one. Are there areas of your life, think expansively, not bare minimum, your relationships with your family, with your roommates, your friend, with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend, your habits, your thought patterns? Are there areas of your life that are out of step with obeying Jesus? Think on those things, and if there's nothing you can think of, ask the Spirit to bring clarity. Father, we come to you tonight recognizing our sin, recognizing that there's nothing we can do on our own to fix it or to make things right in you. The chasm is too wide. We're not deserving of grace, and yet you have extended it to us. Father, you have promised that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Father, I pray tonight that you would convict our hearts, that we would have godly sorrow over our sin. And that we would change our minds, that we would trust that you're worth following, that you love us and that your way is best. Father, I pray that if there are people in this room who have not committed their lives to following you, that tonight they would talk to someone about that. Father, that they would feel the weight of their sin and see the weight of glory in you. Father, I pray um, that we would see your kindness that draws us to repentance and that we would respond in faith. Father, I thank you for the forgiveness that you paid for on the cross. And I pray that we would walk in step with you. Because even though the way is through the cross, we know that victory is yours. And that abundant life can be ours in you, Jesus. I thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace to us. Father, I pray that we would grow up in our understanding of you. And that we would turn from our sin and live. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.